Welcome to Created for Connection. Today we interview author Jill Dasher. She's recently released a book entitled Shallow. It's a book that talks about what it's like to go through struggles and the process of Jill beginning to invite people in to share in her struggle. Today, Jill talks about the difficulties of perfectionism and the relationship of being known and being loved and how necessary that is for each one of us. So sit back, listen in, and remember, you are not alone. Welcome back to Created for Connection. I'm your host, Kevin Shelby, and I'm here with Paul McMullen. How's it going? Hi, everyone. I'm, I'm good, Kevin. I'm uh, in Atlanta, Georgia today. Really? What are you doing there? Well, um, we, we took a vacation last week. With, we were celebrating my wife's parents' 50th anniversary. So we asked them, what do they want to do? They said they wanted to go to the beach. So we went to the beach last week. And then uh, kids are on break and I work on my computer. So we're like, let's go up to Atlanta and, and hang out a little bit more. So we're enjoying time uh, hanging out with them. Yeah, you're taking advantage of free childcare is what you're doing. That's exactly what I'm doing. I, I, I actually asked you for our listeners. I asked if I could come to your house uh, later on this week for the same thing. I was hoping <laughs> that you or your wife could watch my kids while I went around Memphis, but alas well, you're going to be gone yeah well we knew there wasn't anything in it for us so we decided to make sure we were going to be out of town <laughs> so how are you doing i'm doing good man uh i've got a new hobby and what's that i i have been driving around picking up people's trash and selling it on facebook that just there's so many things that sound wrong about that why are you picking up people's trash uh I, man, I don't, I don't know what it is, but there's something really exhilarating about finding something that someone's throwing away and making 20 bucks off of it. It, it really is like a big thrill and I'm loving it. I've Paul, I've made like a thousand dollars this month off of doing this. Just give us one example of something you've made money off of. That was somebody else's trash, a lawnmower. Okay. A perfectly good working lawnmower. It was sitting on the side of the road. The guy was mowing his lawn with his new mower. And I stopped and I was like, is there anything wrong with this? He's like, no, I just, it was, I wanted to get a new mower. And I cranked it up in front of him. I'm like, you're just going to throw this away. And he was like, yes. So I stuck it in the back of my car, drove home and threw it on Facebook and made $200 off of it. Well, that's just lucky. I mean, how do you, how many times do you drive by and somebody gives away a working good mower? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, but I'm I'm I might quit my day job to start doing this. But I think I think you should. But here's the thing: it seems like there's something I don't know hardwired in us that uh, that we find value. I don't know in what people are throwing away. I mean that. There's just There's, something really amazing about that. You can't spiritualize this new hobby of yours. Don't even try. <laughs> you just, <laughs> you like to pick up trash. Uh, and we've got an amazing guest today. We need to stop talking about trash and, and introduce her. 
<laughs> well, yes, we do. Um, today, we we are really fortunate and blessed to have author Jill Dasher on the show with us. And um, we're going to get a chance to dive into Jill's story, which her book actually kind of tells her story. And so we are super excited to have you on, Jill, today. And uh, you want to say a, a few things to the audience? Man, thank you so much, guys, for having me. I, I'm going to be honest with you. I think that this is a divine appointment, Kevin, specifically, because you don't understand my garage right now is filled with trash like that you could probably make money on that. It's probably going to just sit there and like rot. So if you want to drive up to Asheville, you can have first dibs on like the junk that we have accumulated over the years with all of our children and things. Jill, Jill, don't tempt me. I mean, I, I will rent a U-Haul and come up there if it has, you know, if I could, if I can actually sell this stuff. So I need pictures. Okay. I'll send you pictures. I was just sitting here thinking, I was like, man, this is such a divine meeting. I need my garage cleaned out. Like he's doing this as a hobby. Like I want to serve you, Kevin. I mean, however I can, can serve you. <laughs> no, but seriously, I I'm so thankful that you guys asked me to come on the podcast. Um, I listened to your podcast this morning. Um, I think it was the last one you released and, and it was super encouraging to me. Um, Scott, you had him on and I was so encouraged and, and felt so comfortable coming on your show because I was like, man, you guys are discussing real topics. And if, um, my book is called shallow and it's my story, it's my story of being someone who struggled, struggles with being shallow struggles with living for just the surface level life of what people see and how they perceive me. And, and by the way, I'm somebody that still struggles with being shallow. One of the things that I say this in the book, and I always want to say whenever I'm talking about it is that I'm not a guru. I've not arrived at this place where I no longer struggle with how people perceive me or what they think of me. The only difference is now I've, I've allowed myself to see the flaw and I'm progressively letting the Lord guide me into you know, this truth and seeing my flaws and being okay with my flaws. And, you know, it's a process. All healing is a process. So I'm super excited to talk about the book. Um, and I appreciate you having me on. I, I love what you just said, Jill. And it, it really strikes me as something that is at the heart of what Kevin and I are doing, because um, when we speak about these different topics that have come up on this podcast it's not from a place of um we've got all the answers uh you know here's a person that's fixed all their problems and now if you've had this problem in your life then you know just come with them i mean you do want to be down the road in terms of i am facing my problem just like you said but it's an i think it gets you back into in your language it gets you back into the shallow end to be in this place of oh i'm i'm fixed now therefore i will help you be fixed. And I think that's, that's also a lie that the enemy can use to prop us up to when we do struggle again, we're like, Hey, I, I can't share about this. Cause I've already, now I'm the teacher or now I'm the podcaster. So I can't even share about, uh, it, it even ups the pressure to perform. Right. Absolutely. And, you know, we're in a time and culture where you see cancel culture left and right and left and right. And it's this idea that we actually 
think that people can get to an arrival place or we will in our minds assume that they have this topic figured out. Or if you're a preacher, then you're perfect. Or if you're a teacher, then you, you know, whatever the thing is. And we look at men and we say men and women, I mean, mankind as a, as a whole, and we say, okay, you must arrive. You must have arrived at this level of perfection in this area. And then when they make a mistake or they, you know, aren't perfect at it, it's like, oh, you know, you're canceled, you're done. And so I think it, it's, it's so important. And especially as Christians to be very honest that we have not arrived, you know, we're, we're on this continual journey, but man, where I am today versus where I was five years ago, God is like continuing to pull the layers back of my heart. And I just want more of that. Like, is there going to be days where maybe I'm taking a step back? Yes. But I, I hope that I'm on this trajectory where I'm just allowing God to just peel more layers back and more layers back. Um, but yeah. Jill, I, you know, I think that when we look at your book and, and, you know, what I know about your story so far, that a lot of it is rooted in this idea of performance. And so I think some of the things that you're talking about, you, you speak very well to. And, and I, I really want to highlight that today that we're, you know, that we're trying to get down to what are some of the, what does it look like for you personally to peel back those layers? What is it, what does that actually mean in terms of your journey to get to a place of deeper connection which is what you're longing for, just like the rest of us. Mm-hmm. And you, you make a, a statement in your book right in the opening lines of, of, the, inter, of the first chapter that I wanted to read, because I think this is a good launching point for us to, to start digging into your story. And this is what you said. The way I perceived myself, along with my perception of how others viewed me, became my measuring stick for success. If you think I'm kind, then I must be kind. If you think I'm pretty, then I must be pretty. If you believe my life looks like the picture perfect all American family, then that is what it must that is what we must be. I mean, I love the way that you framed that because it really does show that dichotomy that we're that most of us are stuck in and that is trying to to put ourselves in the hands of the lord but always looking to others to validate us and which gets us stuck in the need to perform and so could you just talk to us for a little bit and share with us that part of your story that um that you were stuck in that cycle and what that looked like for you Of course. Um, I'm glad you read that quote. It's actually one of my favorite lines in the book. And I think it's because it speaks so much truth to, to the person that I was for so many years. Um, You know, it was all about the way other people perceive me, just like the, the, the quote says, if you think I'm good, then I must be good. If you think I'm spiritual, then I must be spiritual. If you think you know, I'm pretty, then I must be pretty and enough. And, and I would gauge the way I viewed myself based on how other people viewed me. And there was never this moment of looking inside myself to say, okay, well, 
am I really those things? Forget what people think of me. Am I really kind? Am I really this? Or is all of this just an act so that I can be perceived in this certain light? And so for somebody like myself who struggled with perfectionism, you know, my view, this, my idea was that, you know, as long as other people think I'm this way, then that means I'm successful because I thought I was, I even convinced myself that that's who I was, if that's how other people perceive me. What happens when you're living this way is that in order to make sure you're approved by other people, you have to continually gauge your situation, depending on who you're around. It's like, okay, if I'm around these people, who do they expect me to be? And what do they expect me to look like? And I'm going to be that person for these people. And then, you know, my husband, what does he want for me? What does he expect for me? So I'm going to be that person for him. And you learn to just live your life under this veil of like, shifting and changing who you are to please other people and never really even, even allowing yourself to look inside and think, you know what, maybe I'm not who I portray myself to be. And so I know that so many of our listeners are going to identify with that. And what I'm interested in is how did you do that? How did you, how did you develop the skill of, of looking at people and, and starting to discern what they were wanting from you? I think that started at a very early age. Um, And I think really for me, it, it was more, I would look at other people. I remember growing up in the church. We were very involved in church. My parents were wonderful parents and just had that, they instilled faith in us from a very early age. And, and what I remember going to church and I would, or being in those settings and I would look at other people and I would think that they were perfect. I remember looking at the the leaders in the church, particularly the women in the church or the, I always thought that if you were a pastor's wife, that you were automatically perfect and you got like a ticket to heaven. Like I just thought they, they seem so just holy and just everything about them. And so in my mind, I would look at other people And I would view them as either having it together or not. And if I thought they were perfect, then I would sort of think, okay, if I want to be seen like they're seen, then how do I need to act? How do I need to dress? How do I need to talk to be seen the way that they're seen? And so really it started with just this admiration for other people, which is not necessarily a bad thing, but when you're looking at people and you're expecting this perfectionism out of them, and then you're shaping who you are based off of who you think other people are, well, you're setting yourself up for failure because more often than not, what we see of other people is their best side. They're not putting out their internal struggles for the world to see, and such the case with me, I just assumed these women had it all together. I never thought to ask them, hey, do you really struggle with things like jealousy or discontentment or any of the things that I would have creep in my mind? I just assumed they've got it figured out. So if I can just emulate them, then I will be perceived as having it figured out. I think, I think that's really interesting um, that you're looking at these, in in your case, you're looking at these women in the church 
and you're seeing the good qualities of them, which like you said, that's you're admiring good things in that you see in them. Um, which I think there's a sense in which we want to be drawn to the good. We want to be drawn to the holy, but then you're not, you're not seeing how the road to get there or that there's anything else besides that is what I'm hearing. And, but I, as I was reading some in your book, you talk about, well, I might've been different if I would have asked them about their struggles, but did you ever have someone that was in that role or in that, uh, someone that you looked up to in the, in, as a mentor or someone you wanted to be like ever share their struggles with you? You know, it's funny you asked that question. I was thinking about that the other day and I had several women speak into me growing up, um, women that I admired. I mean, I can name them now and see them now, even my Sunday school teachers and youth group leaders. There were so many things that I admired about these women, but I did not have a relationship with a Christian woman that was like, Hey, let's sit down and talk about like the, the not so good parts of us. Let's talk about like the real struggles. Let, let's talk about these patterns I see in you, Jill, that are probably not healthy. And the reason I think that was, is because I did not put myself in a position to be really challenged because I didn't want to know those things about myself. I have no doubt in my mind that any one of those women that come to my mind, I could have gone to them and I could have said, Hey, can I really talk to you? Um, and can we talk about things that, you know, may be a little bit uncomfortable of the women I'm thinking in my head, every single one of them would have probably said, absolutely. And, and I could have had that relationship. I think the reason I didn't was because of my own fear of seeing anything about myself that I didn't perceive to be perfect. It wasn't just that I wanted other people to think I had it figured out. I believed I had it figured out and I wanted to believe I had it, had it figured out. I did not want to have to, to listen to that little voice in me that occasionally was like, yeah, I don't know if you really are what you put yourself out there to be. Yeah. I love how you see in those people uh, that you're thinking of you, this uh, opportunity to have that relationship that was missed. But I, I am wondering too, just the, the culture that you described, how uh, in church, you know, we dressed uh, to look our best. We behaved our best, you know, uh, you know, you don't, don't say any bad words while you're in church. And you just imagine like when you're in the church environment, you are trying to act better than you are you know like you you can do the other things in other situations but you can't do them at church and i just feel like there's a culture of put on your best face that was it i don't remember seeing much different when i was at church except for those few moments where somebody's life was so broken that they made the shame walk down to the front and which was so, you know something i never wanted to do because i was so scared of what it would be like to admit that be that vulnerable in front of a huge group of people. You're, you're so right. I knew what the perfect Christian girl should look like, act like, talk like, and present themselves as. I knew that like the back of my hand and I could do that. I could, I could fake it till I made it. I, I would, I, I knew what that was supposed to look like, but you're so right. And I, I write about this in my book. I remember seeing people on occasion going down front and confessing to the quote unquote big sins, you know, the ones that were like, 
you know, <laughs> major bad things. And I saw that on occasion, but I never saw somebody go down and confess to, Hey, I'm jealous person. And I struggle with being jealous. Um, I struggle with wanting bad for people when, you know, I struggle with being somebody that really craves the approval of others, just these internal, really sick things going inside of us because we're human and we're broken. Um, I did not see a lot of that. And so in my mind, it was like, okay, well, unless you're, you know, going to walk the aisle for some which is such a funny thing to say big because the things that I'm talking about and that I talk about in this book to me are huge because they're the character issues of your heart that prevents you from being known by other people. They prevent you from allowing God into the deepest, darkest parts of your heart to find healing. And so those are huge things. They're not mine. We, I grew up categorizing sins, which I think is a huge, you know, was a detriment to me for sure. Well, and I, I love what you're talking about because I also think that there's this, um, there's also this real clear picture in my head that has started to form of like, okay, I knew that there were people who were in several different categories in church. There were people that were kind of like on the fringe, you know, they weren't really that engaged and they just didn't really want to participate in much. They were just there. Right. And then, and I'm talking about the adults in my life as growing up as a young kid in church. And then there were people that they were mean, but they were committed believers. And, and so I wasn't going to go to them. Right. Then there were people that were safe to go to right? That, that I could go and I knew just like you talked about, I knew that I could share my, my struggles with them if I needed to. But as, as we're, we're having this conversation, it's becoming clear to me that there was a category of people that were missing and that those were the people that it was safe to go to and they would share back that they were struggling as well. Like, I just don't remember there being people who were, who were very quick to say, you know, this journey is one that you need to walk with others, not by yourself. And you don't ever get to the point of just having it all figured out. Right. In fact, like that, the, the waters get more muddy, the older you get and the more kids you have and all of those things, the, it, the more you start to see your own brokenness as it more, it, it gets more clear to you. Right. Um, and so I think you're highlighting this category uh, that's missing in our churches um, of people that are safe to go to and they're going to be safe to share back as well. Yes, I, I agree with that. And I, but I think and for me personally, I did not. Let's just say that those people were there and they were like out front with the sign saying, I'm safe. Anything you say to me is confidential and I will guide you through. And they would 100% deliver truth to me. I don't think I could have confessed anything to them because I was, it was so important to me because here's the thing. If I confess to them, then all of a sudden they're going to know I'm not perfect. And if they know I'm not perfect, then they're not going to perceive me that way anymore. And then I'm going to have anxiety because they don't think I'm perfect. 
And so I think in a weird way to respond to what you just said, I don't think I could have gone to those people, even if they were there. And I do think they were there in my life. I was so shallow for a lack of better words. I was, it was so important to me that I was viewed in this good light that if I confessed anything like that, then my, my mask is, I'm exposed, you know, I'm no longer that, that person. Um, I know that sounds really bad, but I really think that's the truth. Yeah. No, it doesn't, it doesn't sound bad because it sounds like me and, and I'm sure Kevin might say the same. Um, and you know, it, it sounds like when you look back at your childhood going into teenage years, and, and I want you to speak to this, what, where you could really do, I don't know if you can pinpoint it, but that perspective or that desire to be seen in a certain way grew to where it was so strong. Like you said, you were not going to listen no matter what was offered to you. No. Can you tell those that are listening a little bit about what it was like? When, when did you feel like that, that, persona was really formed in you to where you're like yeah this is that shallowness is really part of me now this is the way I operate in the world well I can tell you when I had the very first I call it holy spirit intervention moment that I rejected in my life and I have a chapter about this in my book it's actually called homecoming 1999 which I laugh at the title of the chapter because how shallow is it that I have a chapter about homecoming night um, when I was in high school, <laughs> but it was, it was homecoming night, 1999, and I was crowned homecoming queen. Um, and so I've described this whole moment and I really remember it like it was yesterday. You know, it's sort of one of those days where if you're a girl, you, you dream about and you think about, and you're like, oh, you know, how great it would be to be liked by everybody and to, to win homecoming queen and to get the crown and all the things. And so that happened that night. And I remember very vividly being crowned homecoming queen, um, doing the smiles and the pictures and all that. And I very quickly walked to my car, took the crown off and I sat in my car and I just had this feeling of emptiness, unlike anything I can describe. And what I think it was, it was like the Holy Spirit. It was like me realizing in myself something that I was not quite ready to see, but really and truly there was like, I just felt, I remember having the thought and this thought sounds really bad, but this is the thought I had. I remember thinking, well, I just want homecoming queen. So I can check that off my list and I don't have to worry about being so nice to everybody. I don't have to, to worry about, you know, making sure everybody thinks that I like them and all the things because I'm homecoming queen. So I can check that off. And I remember having that thought. And then the very next thought I remember having is that's a messed up thought. <laughs> like there's something wrong with you that you would think that. But I could not allow myself to hear that. Like the Holy Spirit, I believe, was trying to deliver a truth to me that night. He was trying to tell me, Jill, one, you're living for the approval of others. Two, it's miserable. Let me love you in your like disgustingness here. Like, like see what I'm trying to tell you. Recognize that you're living a shallow life and let me come in and speak truth to you. But at 18 years old, I could not let myself hear that. So I remember blocking, literally 
Holy Spirit, thanks, but no thanks. I'm not ready for that. And like God does, he's like, okay, I'll, I'll be back. Like, if that's the route you want to go, that's fine. It's going to be a little more painful, but I will be back. And sure enough, he does. And we talk about that in the book as well. Yeah, that I love that story in the book. And um, uh, just your interaction with now looking back, you're like, yeah, that was definitely God speaking to me in that moment and me rejecting God. So as you're uh, getting older, uh, and then eventually, um, you, you get married and, and tell a little bit more about like, what was like life like after homecoming 1999? Well, so, you know, I go off to college and, you know, interesting enough, one of the things I, I spent a lot of time talking about how messed up I am, but I do want to include this little caveat one, and then this is the grace of God, I believe, even with my shallowness, even with my desire to live for the approval of other people, I still had this craving to, to know God. Like I wanted to be this, I, I wanted to be who I portrayed myself to be. I wanted to really be that person. I love God. I journaled all the time. Like I, I wanted to be that person. And one of the things that I felt strongly about that summer between, um, you know, graduating from high school and then going off to college. Cause I, I had different college plans. I planned to go to a different college with some of my friends from high school. And I sort of had this moment of where, um, I really felt that the Lord was saying, you know, if you, if you continue in this same pathway that you're in, um, it's going to be real difficult for you to, to find me like you really want me. It's going to be real difficult for you to, to grow. And I did listen to the Holy spirit and I literally on a whim made the decision to go to a college 13 hours from home where I knew no one. Um, and the only reason I chose to go to this college was I remember a couple that was very influential in my life. Um, he was our pastor when we lived in Calhoun, Georgia, Frank and Summer Mills. And they were a couple I just loved. I loved them so much. And I looked up to them. They were some of the people I looked up to. I thought they were perfect. Um, and really probably they're close to perfect. But they would talk about this college called Harding and I, their memories and all the things. And I just remember thinking of that college. And I said to my mom, I said, you know, that college that Frank and Summer talk about all the time. And she's like, yeah. And I was like, I think I want to go there because I think in my mind, it was like, okay, I've got to get, I've got to cut off everything in my life and restart. I've got to restart because I knew I wanted Jesus so bad, but I didn't have the strength to change this person I'd already become. And I think that was a turning point for me. I went to college. I went to Harding 13 hours away and it was like, I could reinvent myself. And even though I was still reinventing myself with this idea of needing others approval, I at least was reinventing myself into a person that really did want to know the Lord, you know, and to seek the Lord. Um, and I think that was a turning point in my life because God put people in my life that were leading me towards particularly my husband that would eventually lead me to this, this place outside of this perfectionist life. I can identify with so many characteristics of what you just described in your story. I, I feel like my jump to 
to college was a chance to be somebody new and that included in that was this desire to be someone that was pursuing God. And so you talk about these relationships that God led you to, including Zach, your, your husband, and how did that, uh, that next stage, how did that start to form you into who, uh, who you are now? And then how did the shallowness carry through in that next stage of life? So when I went to Harding, I remember it was, I grew up in a public school um, and I loved my school, you know, growing up, but I had never been around Christians that really were really living out, you know, just openly living out their faith. I had not really seen that um, in my life. And so when I went to Harding, this was the first time in my life that I was not concerned with, okay, I need to make sure I align myself with the popular people with whoever is cool on campus. I did not, I wanted God to put me in the life of people that were pursuing him. And so that is where I feel like I first sort of witnessed people living out their faith in a different way. Um, that wasn't like, oh, we go to church on Sunday, but then we live like this, but oh yeah, we love Jesus. But, and so so I had professors, you know, at college that were believers um, and they were very much mentors and they were living out their faith. And I had friends that were professing their faith and living it out. It wasn't just that they were saying they were Christians. They were saying they were Christians, but then also living like they were Christians on days that were not Sunday or Wednesday. And and then I meet this really amazing guy that was super cute and he was a Christian. And to be honest, this was the first time I had met a guy that I was super attracted to that was a believer and not just a believer. He was like hosting Bible studies and teaching people the Bible. And in fact, that was one of our first, you know, times we got together, we were doing laundry in the laundromat and he was teaching me the book of Romans from his Romans class. And I remember thinking, okay, now this is a guy that I could marry. And sure enough, Zach and I got married, um, dated for almost a year and then got engaged and got married at the young age of 20. I was 20 and he was 23. And so getting married super young, which, you know, I would do it all over again. Um, but at the same time, I was still very immature. I'm not going to speak to Zach since he's not here, but I know that I was very immature and I know that I still had a lot of roots of that perfectionism in me and that desire to, to be seen as perfect by him. Um, and it's funny because I remember thinking as a kid, oh, once you get married, you're not going to have any stress anymore. You're not going to have any struggles because you're married, which is such a flawed view of thinking. But I, I did. I took that perfectionism struggle into my marriage and it was difficult. It, it, it caused for some, some hard times our marriage was this thing of where as long as he made me feel good about myself, then we were good. As long as I felt like I was the best wife, the prettiest wife, the whatever, like he was my source of fulfillment. And his job was to make me feel fulfilled 24 seven. And if he didn't do that, then we were going to have issues. And because I was so young, when we got married at 20, I struggled with jealousy big time. And so I was always accusing him of stuff, just random, silly stuff. I saw you looking at that girl or this or that, or just stupid things. You know, I was jealous, but I would have never admitted that I was jealous because I put off 
the complete opposite front. No, I'm super confident. Why would I be jealous? You know? Um, and we, that was kind of the role we played in marriage until one day everything changed. I'm in the car, new baby in the back seat. We're fighting about something stupid. He looked at somebody, I don't know, whatever. <laughs> and he looks to me and he said, he breaks the rules of engagement is what I call it. Because before, anytime we played this little scenario out, he would just say whatever he thought I wanted to hear in the moment. And that would make it better. But this time he didn't, he looked at me and he said, look, you know, I'm trying to be a godly husband to you. I'm trying to live right and lead my family right. But you're constantly accusing me of this stuff. He's like, if you're, if you're not going to believe me, then I might as well just be the person you're accusing me of because at least I benefit from it because you're just sitting here. And, and he said that to me. And I remember just being like, oh my gosh, like I, my insecurities are ruining our marriage. And it was like this, this turning point. I go in the house, literally in my closet. And for the very first time in my life, like ball my eyes out before the Lord and then admit to myself, I have a problem. That's, that was the beginning point of, of God changing my heart of me getting to being even a letting myself see my flaws it's what led to the book. So anyway, I just tell you all that because that might be something worth getting to that would um, really, you know, people can relate to from a marriage, you know. Yeah, absolutely. I One of the things, Jill, that I think is really important in that, that I think could people could connect with on a pretty deep level is there's something going on inside when you have that sort of breaking point and you find yourself in the closet crying, think, having those thoughts of I'm ruining my marriage, but it, but there also has to have this like sense of being trapped between what I feel compelled to do to protect my world versus this other thing that I'm supposed to do to find deeper connection. I don't know how to get there. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I knew I wanted something different, but I had no idea how to get there and, and did not know if I physically would be able to allow myself to be seen for who I really was, even to my husband who should have been, the, I'll take it back even further, even to God who already knew who I was, but God knowing who you are and you admitting who you are to God is two different things because I internally knew that God knew the errors of my ways. But as long as I didn't admit those parts of myself to him, I could fool myself into thinking that he viewed me as this holy and righteous, you know, person. When you went into your room or wherever you were and you just let it all out to God. What was your experience of him in that moment? You know, it was sort of like, I, the only way I can think of it is I just remember like there was a literal weight. Like as I was crying, it wasn't one of those pretty cries. It was like an ugly cry of like, it was almost like just all the moments where the Holy spirit was trying to guide me to truth in my life coming together in this one moment of me finally being like, 
I want to see it. Like I, I'm willing to see it. I'm, I'm willing to feel the pain of this weight. And it was literally like, just like, like the weight of me trying to be this perfect person or put up this perfect image was just like falling off of me. And it wasn't a feeling of desperation. It was more a feeling of relief. And it was a feeling of like God's hand on me. Like, I love you here and I love you more in this position than I could ever love you while you're trying to pretend your way through life. Like I love you at your darkest and lowest point. And honestly, one of my favorite um, sort of pictures of the gospel and scripture takes place in the garden in the very beginning, whenever Adam and Eve sin and their initial reaction is to run and hide and they're covered up in these fig leaves and they're at the worst of the worst. They're feeling like they've ruined it for all mankind. And one of the things that I never feel like we highlight enough is that God comes looking for them. Like he says, where are you? And it's not because he didn't know where they physically were. He's the God of creation. He knew where they were located physically, but I think he says, where are you? Because he wants them to recognize where they are at. Like, we're here, we're covered in fig leaves, like, and, and to come out of hiding. And they do, they come down from the tree, they come out and they're like, yeah, we've screwed it up. And I just think it's such a beautiful picture that the God we serve comes looking for us at the point where we think we're at our lowest, where we think we've, you know, screwed it all up. And for me, that moment in the closet was this realization of, who I really am in my flesh, but who God was telling me that I was, even when I felt so vulnerable, it was like, I have never felt more loved in that moment, if that makes sense. And this was just an admittance to God. This was, I hadn't admitted anything to Zach. There was not me putting anything out there for anybody else. This was a moment between me and God, which yeah, I should have had these moments way early on. I should be having these moments daily. But for somebody that struggles with perfectionism, we do not admit our flaws to anyone, much less ourselves. And for me, it was the first time in my life that I admitted my junk to myself and to my creator. And it was the most amazing yet terrifying moment. <laughs> So can I just ask one question about that? What, what do you feel like was at stake up until this point for you to crack into that? What, what were you, what was the risk in admitting that you weren't perfect? Well, I think, and I'll, I may be answering this backwards, but we'll, we'll circle around. The risk was life. Like I was living a surface shallow life that yeah, may have looked okay to the outside world. Oh, they're a cute family. Oh, their kids are so cute. Oh, they, they love Jesus. Like, but to live your life, just going through the motions of life in a, in an effort to be seen as having it all together. What I'm telling you is that's a miserable life because nobody in your life will really know you. Me and Zach up to that point, we loved each other. And we love Jesus, but we didn't know each other. And we didn't know each other on a level of, no, I know you at your worst and I affirm you at your worst. No, we didn't show each other anything bad about ourselves because 
we were too afraid. If I show him who I really am, he's not going to think I'm awesome anymore. Or if he shows me who he really is and what he struggles with, I'm not going to think he's amazing anymore. And so we're, we were living in this, like, just like going through the motions of life. So what you're, when you're living that way, you're risking ever really living. But also when you're living that way and you're afraid of like getting out of that, I think the fear is what all of our fear is. But what if they don't really love me in my brokenness? What if he sees my jealousy that he already sees and knows? What if he sees my like shallowness about like my appearance and my image? And, and what if he's like, ugh, like, why did I marry her? That's disgusting. I think the fear is what if they don't love me if I don't have it all together, but yet we know we don't have it all together. So it's like this, like, uh, what do we do? You know? Um, so I think it's the risk, the risk of being known it, it, like you have this, the, the choice you can make is like, okay, I can, I can coast and like exist in a marriage with this person. And maybe we don't have any major fallout, which I would argue that you will eventually anyway, or you can risk someone seeing you the truth of who you are and it being painful for a time and it being a process and it being a life going process, but one that allows you to live in a way that you never really lived and allows you to parent in a way that you never parented because no longer are you trying to look like you haven't figured out. Now you realize you don't. And you're like, okay, God, what do you need to change in me today? And tomorrow, what do you need to change in me tomorrow? And how do I need to, to share this message with my kids? So they don't grow up living their lives the way I lived my life. That's so well said, Jill. And, you know, I think that it reminds me of the scripture where Jesus is saying that some people in the end are going to come to him and they're going to say, you know, Lord, we cast out demons in your name. And, you know, we, we did all of these amazing things in your name. And the response is going to be, I, I don't know you. I don't know you. And, and the message is, it's not because we have this mean God and, and Jesus is just going to be lording it over people. You know, it's, it's that I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Mm -hmm. I desire connection with you over anything that you could go out there and do to show me just how great you are. Because it's not about your greatness. It's about your heart. It's about being known and the connections that you have. And so when we look around us and we're like, hey, we got this great family, we got all, we've got the 2.5 kids and the white picket fence, you know, we're living the life, but I feel empty. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's something that we, we see in our culture happening a lot. It's happening all around us. People get the life. And they're like, what do I do? So they turn to addiction and they, you know, they turn to something that's more exciting than what they're experiencing right now. And it's hard to have these moments where they're these breakthrough moments show us, oh, life is not in some new next thing that I can be better at, or I can, 
you know, leave my mark on the world or I can, you know, go do some new exploit. But it is in the here and now being known by the people that I really love and care about. So I'm really interested in, you know, you have this in the closet, ugly crying moment, which by the way, I've never had a non ugly crying moment. I, you know, I, I don't know how to cry pretty, so it's good that you do. But I think that like, that's such a, a pivotal moment. I'm interested what happens after this in your marriage and your relationships, where do things go from here? So that moment was interesting. That moment was a starting point for me. It was at first for me, it was a starting point. It was, I guess, press play on the process. And in the book, I have a chapter that talks about the process um, because so many times I think, you know, we, we think about a struggle and it's like, oh, we get cured of that overnight. Or there's this, you know, emotional experience where you're no longer going to struggle anymore. Or you're going to have this moment of immediate healing. And I do want to highlight that God is a God of, of healing immediately. There's evidence all throughout scripture where, where he heals immediately. But there's also evidence in scripture where, where it's a process. And a lot of times I feel like the process is God's clever way of working with us and through us in a way that's going to be much more profound, profound than just the immediate cure. And for me, it certainly was that. And so when I had that moment, I began to journal. I've always been a journaler. Writing is sort of my avenue of expression. And, um, and so I started journaling and my journal was simple. It was very much just an admission of struggling with jealousy. That was the, the sin that I admitted to. And I just asked God over and over to heal me from it every day. In some aspect, I would write, you know, heal me from jealousy. That was what I was writing. And I was also praying that. And so it was a day by day and a moment by moment. And this, I hadn't confessed this to Zach yet. This was still just sort of like me and God's little secret, right? And I'm just journaling my way through this and he's tugging away at my heart. And when I have those inclinations to accuse Zach of these things or whatever, God's reminding me, Hey, you know, just stop for a minute and think about you look, look inside. And so I remember for several months, just journaling and praying for that. And it led to a moment that I felt like I needed to confess this verbally to Zach. And that was a really cool moment in our marriage because for a man that has felt the burden of carrying the fulfillment of his wife on his shoulders for years, like literally years, feeling like everything he said and did had to be done in a way to make her feel awesome for, for that wife to go to him and say, you know what? Um, you cannot be the source of my fulfillment anymore. And I've got to confess something to you about me and a wrong that I have done to you. And I confessed jealousy to him. And it was, you know, it sounds like a simple confession, but no, it was years of me living through this struggle of finally being able to say that to my husband. And it's an ugly sin, especially for a girl. No girl wants to admit that they're jealous. And it was a life-changing moment in our marriage for sure. And it was like that weight that I felt come off of me in that closet. I sort of could see come off of him in the sense of, now we're, now we can, we can go, we can move from here. Like we're, we're at a place of imperfection. And when it was like, good, it's like, okay, now we can grow. We can start, you know, we're at a starting point of getting real. And what I didn't realize is, you know, 
for me in that moment, it was such a huge confession. I thought, oh, I didn't realize there was so much more to come. I didn't realize that that was just the beginning of God peeling the layers of me and Zach back to get us to a place where, you know, that moment seemed like nothing compared to years later. And so that's, what's awesome about God is it's always more with him. Whenever those conversations come up, I mean, there's so much dread or there can be so much dread and anticipation. I'm guessing like that first conversation, there was a lot of pins and needles, you know, approaching it. And then you're talking about the weight lifted and what was, again, in terms of connection between you two, you're talking about, you know, this was the, the open door to greater connection and knowing each other. What did, what was your response like? Cause I, I can imagine people in relationships that are thinking, I, I need to have that conversation. It's so scary. You know, again, worst case scenario, they're, they're just going to leave. Um, what, what did it feel like for you guys? Well, I just remember for me, I, I felt sick because it was, you know, I had been going through this journey with God and God knew I wasn't perfect and God knew I didn't have it together, but I didn't reveal that part of myself to Zach, even though, <clears throat> excuse me, Zach didn't think I was who I portrayed myself to be, but I had not confessed that to him. And so there was this idea in my head is, okay, if I actually say these words, am I going to want to take them back? Because one, and this sounds silly, but there is such a stigmatism with jealousy and women. Like it, we just feel like, ugh, like I'll admit to anything, but I, I don't, I want to admit that I'm jealous because we're obsessed with this idea of confidence. And that if a woman is confident, then she never, you know, she never struggles with jealousy. She never. And so I remember I was just really afraid of, you know, what he would, how he would view me because I, again, I still struggle with approval and I wanted my husband to view me as a righteous woman, as a holy woman, you know? Um, but so there was that fear there, but the opposite happened because when you confess to something that your spouse already knows you deal with, it's actually a beautiful thing because he's like, finally, thank you. Like, why haven't you said this forever? <laughs> and not just from the standpoint of like, yeah, I know you did, but it opened up for him because this is what you have to understand when you struggle with perfectionism, it's not just your struggle because what you do is you train people that are close to you in your life to behave in a way that validates you. So they learn to hide and they learn to pretend because they're playing your game. So just as much as I wasn't confessing and I was living this like outwardly perfect looking life. My husband was doing the same thing because that was the only way that I was going to feel good about myself. So we were both doing the same thing. And so that confession sort of like burst this bubble and actually opened the door for him to feel free to confess for him to feel free to not live this perfect life. And so it was like this moment of relief but I also want to say this, and I talk about confession quite a bit near the end of my book, um, confession, because sometimes like if I'm painting this picture, you think of this like beautiful moment and it was a beautiful moment. And I can think of several beautiful moments that we have had around confession in our marriage, but confession almost always brings about 
pain as well. And there's a process of working through whatever the thing is. It's like, okay, yes, I've confessed to you that I'm jealous, but three days from now, when I'm ratting you out for turning your head, when a beautiful lady comes back, we still got to deal with it. We still got to process it, you know? And so a lot of times confession brings about a season of pain and we're tempted when that season of pain comes to recoil and be like, never mind, I take that back. But that's when the Holy Spirit is like, no, dig in your heels and keep pushing through. Because what I like when, when the Holy Spirit directs us and guides us into all truth, it is for our benefit and it continues. And so that truth, to the extent that we're willing to say, okay, I want to hear it and I want to see it in myself and I'm going to go where you're leading me is to the, is the extent you will experience more freedom and more freedom and more freedom. That brings up a question I was wondering about in, in reading some of your, your book, um, this, this idea of listening to the Holy Spirit, inviting us or convicting us into truth and seeing ourselves rightly. And I was thinking about how on the flip side of that, there's also the voice of the accuser that wants to point out all our flaws to make us feel bad. So how do people discern whether that voice that they're hearing that's pointing to something that they see that they are recognizing or feeling uncomfortable because it's a broken place within them? How do they discern whether it's the Holy Spirit or the enemy? So the way I think about this is in the in the realm of guilt and shame. And I believe that guilt comes from God and shame comes from Satan. And the way I describe it is like guilt is, is, is the Holy spirit guiding us to this truth for us to understand, Hey, this is not how you were made to live. This isn't who I created you to be. This is not who you are. Our sin struggle is not who we are. It's, our sin struggle. So many times we, we, whatever our struggle, our sin is, we take that on as our identity. Like guilt is from God to show us this isn't who you are. This isn't what I created you to be. Listen to me as I guide you towards a beautiful truth. What Satan does is he heaps shame and he says, oh no, this is who you are. You, you will never be anything but this person. You will never you know, like you're so disgusting. God does, God's got no healing left for you. This is who you are. And so the way to recognize is what I'm hearing from God or from Satan, when Holy Spirit delivers truth, it's, it's guiding you to a better place. If, if you're living in shame and you're living in this place of, I'm always going to have the struggle and I'm always going to be this person and there's nothing left for me, then then that's a lie from Satan. That's how you know the difference. Guilt is from God. Shame is from Satan. And so Jill, as you're kind of describing the difference between those two things, I'm also thinking, you know, what's tricky about that is it seems like a lot of our, our gifts that God has, has instilled in us run right alongside of our weaknesses you know they're 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 so closely connected and so i think that's where the enemy comes in and uses our weakness to to frame an identity about who we are um that we buy we believe that's why it's so easy for us to just take it hook line and sinker 
And, um, and distilling that out and separating those things is really an important process. So I'm interested in your journey as you were recognizing there's this jealousy there, there's, there's this overarching struggle with perfectionism. Who was God starting to show you that you actually were instead of believing that lie and that identity? I think what he was starting to show me as I was beginning to let myself start to live out confession because confession is something I heard about a lot growing up. I didn't see a lot and I didn't do a lot ever. I didn't confess. And if you, you know, I think about that James scripture, confess your sins so that you may be healed. Well, if you're living a life of perfectionism, you can't confess your sins because you're supposed to be perfect. So you're not going to experience healing. And so it's, it's like this, you know, complete lie that you're believing because it's keeping you from doing the very thing that's going to bring healing into your life. And so I think what God was showing me when you, when you do confess and, and you like God speaks truth into that broken place and you get that feeling of like, man, he, he does love me. He does see me where I'm at and he still loves me. You want more of that. It's almost like you become, so whereas for forever, I was praying for God to heal me of jealousy. My prayers started shifting to God. Please show me more of the things about myself that I need to see that I'm not willing to see. Because once you taste a little bit of healing from a sin that you thought you were hopeless in, you start to believe, well, maybe God really is who he says he is. And maybe he really is a God of healing. And you start to experience little bits of that healing to where it makes you actually want to confess more, which more confession leads to more healing as opposed to just like this one and done. Oh, he's healed me of jealousy. So I never have to think about it again. I never have to, I'm healed. I'm done. No, it's a day by day, sometimes moment by moment of, of taking yourself back to the throne room. Like I'm here again, I'm having this thought or I'm thinking this self, this thing about myself or other people, like I'm going to need you to speak into me. And it's not that there's this instant, like, Oh, I'm good now, but it's, I'm going back to the throne room because I know over and over as many times as it takes, because I've experienced how good it feels when God starts to bring healing into your life in whatever area. Yeah. Preach it. Preach it, Jill. (laughs) I wanted to say that several times. Um, That is uh, because you said, and, and there was a point earlier, you said, um, this goes back to my relationship with Zach, your husband, but then, then you said, no, it goes back to my relationship with God. And it's this view of God as someone that's going to be disappointed with us. If, if, you know, we have, if we come clean and we really go, maybe we're like, yeah, he already knows, but, oh, I'm going to bring this up to him. I'm going to be in the throne room or however you picture you. I'm going to be in the closet pouring myself out. How is God going to respond? And your, your testimony, your testimony here is that, I've tasted and seen that the Lord is good and that helps me believe that he is good and he's for me. And that encourages me to go back to him. Now I'm going to say preach. (laughs) Yes. That in a nutshell is the essence of what I'm trying to say. When I talk about confession, when I talk about myself is that I have tasted and seen that he's good. 
And because I have, I want to live in that space. And, and, you know, scripture said, Jesus says in him, you will have life and you will have it abundantly. And that's what I missed for many years. I tried to have abundant life in the way people saw me. I had tried to have abundant life as long as I was beautiful physically. I tried to have abundant life and having this awesome godly marriage and these beautiful kids. And every time it disappoints. And if I don't go back to him, which is where life really is abundant, then I'm missing out because I can be in the lowest of lows, but if I'm at his throne room, I'm good. And I didn't realize that. I didn't realize that he really was that good. I just viewed him as the God who's God. He created us in seven days and da, da, da. And I knew all the stories and I knew all the scripture. I didn't know. I knew, I knew the Bible. I didn't know the God of the Bible. <laughs> I knew the gospel, but I didn't know Christ. And so you can have all the biblical knowledge you want, but if you don't know him, you, you really have nothing. And that was something that I am still learning more and more every day. And sort of where I want to camp out is just in him. Jill, you have put things so beautifully. And I, I am even just sitting here, like thinking about times in my life where like, I can remember just breaking down because God intervened in my life in, in the midst of a, you know, a sin moment and still welcomed me in, you know, and, and drew me into his presence. And I, I mean, I can just remember like a specific instance, just weeping and saying out loud, it's too good. It's too good. It hurts. It's so good. Right. And I think that that's something that you're, you're talking about in this idea of confession, you know, that, I mean, it's scary, but you're going to find that it's, it's beyond your expectations of what he will do and how he will show up for us. And I think that, you know, just what I know about your book, that that's the story. That's, that's what you're trying to tell. And so, you know, I, I, I want to, I want to give just a little bit of time for you to talk about, you know, um, the book and when you're releasing it, because I'm excited to, you know, to go back and, and really pour through the pages of your book, knowing more of your story today. So can you share a little bit about like, you know, what is this book to you and what are you hoping readers are going to get from it? Sure. So the book releases tomorrow, which actually is June 29th. Um, it will be available on my website, jilldasher.com or Amazon, not to sound like a commercial, but <laughs> it will be available there. But this book um, it's sort of a heart project. The Lord laid it on my heart several years ago, almost four years ago. It really, um, it's my story. It's my personal story of coming, of living for the approval of other people, of living a very shallow life, of struggling with my image, perfectionism, flattery and friendships, um, marriage, all of these things that we have talked about on the podcast. But it's what I hope that it is for the readers is an invitation for them to sort of go to their own throne, to, to the throne room with God in their own lives and in their own struggles. At, it's also a journal at the end of every chapter is sort of this invitation for the reader to, to search their heart and figure out where they're at. Because I realized that 
all of the things that I struggle with are not going to match somebody else. It's not that you have to share all my struggles to read this book and glean from it, because really the underlying theme is just that no matter where our struggles are at, like if they're different, that's fine. The, the theme is just like, allow yourself to one, admit them to yourself, get to a place where you're willing to say, I want to see my brokenness. And then I want to take that brokenness, God, and I'm going to speak it out to you. I'm not just going to assume, you know, it, I'm going to speak it to the God of creation out loud so that, that all of a sudden there's this accountability there with you and, and your creator. And you begin to let the creator rewrite your heart, begin to let the creator speak healing into you. One of the things I say in the book is just because you are having this confession moment with God, it doesn't necessarily mean that you're ready to put that out for everybody else, um, that that's going to come. And what's really cool about this book is some of the things that I've written in here, if you would have told me 10 years ago that I'm going to write a book and I'm going to confess things saying, and I'm going to put it out there for people to read, I would have told you, you were insane. Number one. And number two, I don't ever struggle with any of those things, not me, but what's awesome is that when you, like you said, taste and see that the Lord is good and he is healing you in the weirdest way, you cannot help, but share that with other people even if it means you're having to tell them the really disgusting things about yourself. And so my, my prayer throughout this whole book is God, if you can take my brokenness and, and lead somebody to a, to your throne room to where they can experience healing in their life in any way, I would consider that such a high honor, like just to be used by you as a vessel. And really that is my prayer for this book. And I've sort of placed it in his hands and just, you know, I pray God, you will put it into the hands of who you would have read it. And my hope is that it would break chains in people's lives that maybe you were living like me and feel like they always have to be whoever they're around thinks they should be. So we're going to get out of the shallow and into the deep. <laughs> and and that's the name of the book, Shallow, which you can find again on jilldasher.com. Yes. Um, you know, I, one thing that I just wanted to say is, you know, it's, it's so clear to me that w with myself and with the people that I interact with on a daily basis that we really struggle with this wanting to to keep parts of ourselves in the shadows, in the dark, and kind of fracture them off of who we are. We, we despise our brokenness because of mm -hmm. where we feel like it, it, it holds us back or it keeps us you know, from accomplishing things or whatever. And it seems to me though, that when we stop fracturing those places off and we start we start recognizing them, we start owning them and naming them, putting them before the Lord and sharing that with him. Um, they, they become less of a that part of us and they become more of a place of healing, right? And I think that as that grace happens internally, it also starts to expand out into the people and the relationships around us that there are, we despise parts of other people less as well. And so I love that your book gives people an invitation 
to engage the fractured parts of themselves, to engage the broken parts of themselves. And that you even have this space for journaling to say like, don't just listen to my words and think about it, go to work and do something with it. Because it is in that space that you're going to find healing for yourself. And you're also going to find healing in your relationships while you go through that process. So I love that. Absolutely. Yeah. That is my prayer completely. I, I loved what you said, invitation into your fractured places. I should have used that in, in the book. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, I felt like in, in reading, um, your book and then in talking to you today, you've been able to put into words many of the things that Kevin and I have wanted to share with people and you've, you've said it so well. And so I, I think, again, I, I wonder about how the Holy Spirit is at work wanting to highlight some things uh, to uh, the people of the, of the body of Christ, trying to get us, trying to shake us and wake us up into this reality. Because again, you, you have, have spoken our heart so well in, in those pages. And then again today, and I just think it's a convergence of something that God's wanting to do and for, to help more people find that space of healing and freedom. And so I'm just, I'm very thankful. I'm thankful to get to, um, to, to talk to you more today, just to get to um, hear those things come out. And, and then hopefully, again, this is something we want God to use uh, to bring healing and to bring people, like you said, into the throne room of God. Thank you so much. I really, really appreciate you guys having me and what you're doing and the message behind your, your podcast. Um, it's, it's very similar to my book. And so I think that if, if the more of us as the body of Christ are saying, okay, God, we want to be really known by you. And we come together in our weaknesses, instead of pretending like we've got it all together, um, man, the, the kingdom is, is going to be fruitful for him. So thank you guys. Well, I absolutely Jill. And I, I see this less as, as, as an idea and more as a movement, you know, within churches, calling people to a place of deeper connection, deeper intimacy with God and each other, and to not just settle for checking off boxes that, that we've, we see where that has gotten us in the church. Mm -hmm. You see the state of the church today, and we know what we get when we just show up and that's all it's about, right? Um, and I don't, I know, I know that it sounds like in your book and in our conversation today that you want more and I want more and Paul wants more and, and Zach, your husband wants more. I think that God is raising up a community of people that are starting to recognize that, that we need more in our, in our connections and relationships as the body of Christ. And so, you know, I'm, I am seeing the Lord, you know, uh, raise people up in different circles all over the place, kind of saying some of the same things. And I love it. And I think that that's only by the Holy Spirit. And so I'm excited that we get a chance to be a part of that and, and get to talk to you about it today. So thank you, Jill. You're so welcome. Um, I want to so thank, welcome. yeah. And, and I want to thank our listeners for, for uh, taking the time to sit down with us today and listen to the conversation. And I hope that it's been meaningful and a blessing to you. I know that it has been to me and um, Jill, I'd love to have you back on the show at some point 
Um, I mean, I, you know, if it weren't, it, it, I mean, I know that you've got so many things going on and, um, and there's lots in, in your world. I know your son is actually watching your, your kid right now, just so you can participate with us. And I love that. And so, uh, uh, I know that that's hard to schedule, but we would love to have you back on sometime just just to share more of your thoughts because I know there's a lot more there. Absolutely. I would love it anytime. <laughs> All right. Well, so that's it for our show today. Thanks for joining us. And um, if you look at the show notes, we'll have links to Jill's website and her new book, Shallow, um, which is going to be released tomorrow, June 29th. And we pray that it's a blessing for you. And um, many thanks to all of our listeners who have supported us. Make sure that you share this podcast, that you like it, that you follow us, that you do click all the buttons that you can on all the sites so that the word can get out and these resources can get out into the hands of the people that need it. And um, ultimately, we want you to remember that you are not alone. Thank you for joining us today on Created for Connection. Special thanks to Cheyenne Metters for creating the music for our podcast. Please remember to like and share this podcast. Also, if you will click follow, that will help us to get the word out more effectively as we grow. And we want to be able to get this material into the hands of the people that need it. And so we want all of our listeners to help us get the word out. Thank you so much for listening in today. We pray that it was a blessing to you and we pray that it helps you remember you are not alone.